Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Wednesday, December 16th, 2020. On today's episode, we're going to be gathering around the virtual water cooler to talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I am the senior writer at SlashFilm.com, and I am joined on today's episode by Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Ho, 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 it's almost Christmas, so I can <laughs> say that instead of my usual greetings. I don't know if I'll be able to record next week. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm also joined by Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. And writers, Y Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. And Chris Evangelista. Hello. Disappointing. Uh, All of you did not do Christmas greetings. I, I was, thought I was establishing a trend. All right, let's start over. I, I, I thought <laughs> I was going to do a thing. All of you guys would say, oh, what a cute thing Jacob just did. Maybe I'll build on that and I'll say, Merry Christmas. I or I'll say, to peer pressure. Well, I, uh, Brad didn't say anything. So I was like, oh, no, I don't want to seem uncool. I, I honestly couldn't think of anything good to say that was Christmassy and matched what I say. So I was just going to save it until next week. Well, I don't want a lot for Christmas. <laughs> I... <laughs> There's just one thing you need, H.T.? There's just one thing I need. The one thing I need is for all of you to take my lead and realize that uh, in proper improv classes, you learn to ask uh, yes and, and not just to ignore what your uh, improv partner says when he introduces the Christmas theme at the top of the podcast. So screw all of you. No Are Merry Christmases, no Happy Holidays, none of it to any of you. Are we starting over? What if the whole show is just us trying to get this intro right? Just like a no, full hour of just... I, I refuse to start over. We're keeping all, right. all of this in. Uh, welcome to the show, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, guys, we're, we're almost, as Jacob said, we're almost uh, near Christmas. Um, Peter is not available this week, but he will be back, I believe, uh, for the Mandalorian episode, and then he'll be back in, in full swing, I think, next week. Uh, but let's let's jump into it. Let's. Um, we were going to talk about, you know, just skip right into what we've been reading because as the pandemic is still raging, uh, most of us have not been doing much of anything. But Jacob raised an interesting, or what I thought was interesting, an interesting idea in our Slack right before we started recording, and I, I told him to toss it in here and let's talk about it on the podcast. So Jacob, what, what is this uh, question you wanted to pose to the group? I ran out of space in my Gmail. It popped up very suddenly. This very threatening message about how I'll, I'll stop receiving emails soon. So I cleared out my Google Drive. I deleted everything I possibly could. And the message persisted for days. I thought, with every email I got, I thought, oh my God, this is the one where I stopped getting emails. And eventually I just did a shortcut where you manage, you type in like 
is apostrophe unread. Uh, you select all visible emails. You click on little other notifications saying select all like this. It's much harder than it should be. And I deleted all the emails that were unread in my inbox, mostly spam, mostly stuff from publicists that were trying to sell me on movies I had no interest in clicking on. Uh, and it ended up being 51,000 emails uh, that, were, that were, I were considered unimportant, so I had no qualms about deleting them. Uh, but it took a long time. It took a long time to delete 51,000 emails. And so HGU later suggested to me that Google seems to be maybe having a lower cap on their uh, under storage, which is why this happened. Uh, but I've never seen this before. Uh, it's a Gmail account I've had for you know well over a decade now. So I'm curious to all of you, have you ever run out of space in Gmail? Well, I think it's actually Google announced recently that they're actually instituting a cap because beforehand they had offered limitless storage. But I think like a couple of months ago, they said that starting like the new year, 2021 or something, or sometime soon, they're going to be instituting a cap on all of like the Google cloud spaces. So not just Gmail, but um, Google Photos, I remember was a big one and other such things. So, and I've been seeing like the little percent bar on my Google, on my Gmail uh, storage for a while now and getting very nervous about when I will be running out. So I've been kind of more cautious about deleting things too. So, um, but I think, yeah, I think it's part of that overall sort of cap that Google is being more strict about now. Yeah, so um, I had the same thing too. And a, a while back, like sometime earlier this year, I think I noticed that I was getting super close. And so I started deleting a bunch of old emails. And so I brought it I brought it down enough, but like it was just taking so long to make any dent in it that I just decided to sign up for like the lowest tier of paying for extra cloud space on Google, which is like three bucks a month. And it gave me more than enough like for what I had and not have to worry about filling it up for a long time. Probably but, got you. They won. <laughs> I know they did. But I will say um, there is one thing that, that is happening that I, I got an email about. I don't know if you guys got this email, but starting on June 1st, 2021, uh, if you exceed your storage limit for two years, you may uh, they may delete some content across your Gmail, Drive, and Photos. But you have some time to figure that out because even though that policy is effective on June 1st, 2021, it won't actually matter until two years after that. So if you've exceeded your uh, limit for two years after June 1st, 2021, then you might start losing stuff. So you essentially have two and a half years to start cleaning out the extra things in there before they start deleting any of your stuff. Or once again, uh, go to your search bar, type IS apostrophe unread, uh, hit the put the button to select all, a little queue will pop up at the top of the middle of your Gmail in tiny little letters. Click on that little queue, a little link will pop up, and then it'll delete everything unread. Uh, if you're like me, uh, it, like I said, it took a little while. It took probably a good 20 minutes of a message saying, deleting emails, but they were all gone. 51,000, Jacob. That's, I mean, God, my, that, that's impressive. That's that's a lot of emails. So, uh, yeah, I'm curious if, if anybody else out there has uh, encountered anything like this. I, I haven't personally. Um, Chris, have you, have you experienced anything like that? Sorry, I forgot where the mute button was because I'm not used to using. We're using <laughs> Skype again for the first time in a while, people at home. That's why we sound different. Um, no, I have not run into this problem, but I have seen people talking about it. So yeah. Also, just to clarify, because I tried this myself and it didn't work. It's actually is colon unread. Oh, is that what, what did I say? Apostrophe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you, Brad. You uh, can also just type in unread into the search bar, and it will like show you as one of the drop-down options. Because I've done that before too. 
Okay, so you well, don't need I'll, to do all the colon fancy stuff. A YouTube video that was two minutes long went through some agonizing details. What I followed here, <laughs> I will say this much: if you have, if you had a problem with, with Gmail, if you ever had a problem with Google, if you have a problem with Space, if you ever had a problem, you should definitely email Peter about this. You should definitely blow up his <laughs> inbox with your Gmail problems. Oh, the irony if Peter were to run out of space because of this. But uh, yeah, you can. Peter you pays can... money for his Gmail. He just told us on Slack uh, from his from the trip he's on. Uh, so. Don't feel bad. Peter has all the space in the world. Send him your Gmail problems. Yes, Peter at SlashFilm.com for all of your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns. So, uh, all right. Well, I guess now that the uh, the house cleaning portion of the uh, podcast is is uh, underway or, or out of the way, um, HT, let's go into what we've been reading. What have you been reading recently? I have been continuing my journey into Earthsea. I finished The Farthest Shore, uh, which is really, really excellent. I described it last, maybe a couple of weeks ago. I'm going really slowly through these books, which is not, I feel like people may be judging me on my reading um, sort of speed right now. I can read very fast, but life gets in the way. And, you know, we're all busy people. Anyways, um, I finished The Farthest Shore and um, it's really excellent. I described it last time as as being a, a seafaring type of journey, but um, it's also the, the book out of all the Earthsea books that I've read so far that most resembles an epic fantasy and high fantasy of the Tolkien caliber. And uh, it deals not only with that seafaring element and that journeying element, but also uh, those... Um, those um, basic concepts of good and evil and tampering with the uh, line between death and life. And it's it's very fascinating, really great stuff. So um, part of the short, great book, probably actually one of my favorites of the ones I've read, although I have, you know, a fondness for the Tombs of Atuan, which is um, one I read when I was youngest. Uh, so I started reading Te- Teanu, uh, or Tehanu, which uh, I've never read before. And this one is really interesting because it picks up on the two characters from Wizard of Earthsea and from Tombs of Atuan. So it's like, it's the one uh, book out of all of these that has, um, that most returns to the two characters that kind of started this series and uh, kind of picks up on them after their their great adventure, after their big journey. And uh, they're both sort of middle-aged, graying people now. And uh, it's a really fascinating, unlikely uh, sort of story that I, I've read in fantasy. Usually, again, it's all about the great adventure, the great heroes. So you never really see what happens after that adventure. And um, I'm really enjoying that aspect so far and um, how it digs deep into the mythology of the world as well. So uh, I'm, you know, only partway through Teanu so far, but uh, also excellent. Ursula K. Le Guin, great writer. All right, good stuff. Uh, let's get into what we've been watching. Um, let's see. I had the chance to watch News of the World, which is Paul Greengrass's new movie that stars Tom Hanks, uh, Brad, and Chris. You guys also saw this. Um, Chris, I think you reviewed it for SlashFilm.com, right? Yes, I did. Okay, so let's start with you. What did you think about News of the World? It was good, not great. Um, I like a lot of what's going on here. I, you know, I like the basic plot. Um, Tom Hanks is really good in this. Uh, I, you know, I, I honestly think this should be held up among like some of his best work. It's just a really good, like quiet, melancholy performance. And he does that really well here. Uh, the music, gorgeous, gorgeous music. Uh, the problem is Paul Greengrass, who I think is a good director, but I think his style doesn't lend itself to this movie. Um, he doesn't 
do as much of his style. And, you know, for those who don't know, his style is it's a lot of handheld. It's a lot of a lot of close ups. Uh, you know, you know, think of his Bourne films where the camera is just constantly moving around and in everyone's face. And he dials it back a little bit here, but he still does it. And, you know, I get it. That's his style. That's what he likes. But it just doesn't work with the, this this material because you know it's a, it's a western and it, it just feels like someone like went back in time with a camera and ran around filming people you know in the old west and it just does it just found that really distracting and so you know i liked it but i, I can't say you know it's not going to end up like on my best of the year list or anything like that even though you know maybe like best performances of the year I, I would definitely go with with tom hanks but other than that uh yeah it, it's it's fine that's my review <laughs> Uh, Brad, what did you think about this one? Um, I would say that I maybe liked it just a little bit more than Chris did. Um, I didn't really find myself like taken out of the movie by uh, Green Grass's directing style, simply because like he uh, he said, you know that that shaky camera work isn't quite as egregious here as it is in the Bourne movies. Uh, so it didn't really bother me. And the parts that I noticed that he he was using that, it I kind of appreciated it because it's not something that you often see in the Western genre. Um, but it is it is very much a, a classic Western story, you know, of this uh, guy who ends up getting uh, saddled with, no pun intended, um, an unlikely companion that he has to try to take care of and keep safe. And they encounter various unsavory characters as they make their way across, um, you know, the, the across the desert. Uh, and Tom Hanks is fantastic. I, I look very much look forward to the uh, grizzled older Tom Hanks period of, of his career, because I feel like he can do some really interesting things as he gets older um, and becomes, you know, much, much more of a, you know, a, a gray character as you will. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, it's something that I appreciate very much. I enjoyed watching it. I walked away satisfied, uh, but it wasn't anything revelatory as far as like the Western genre is concerned. And I, I don't think it'll end up making my year end list either, but I, I was very happy to have seen it. I enjoyed it quite a bit, but it's sort of same. Like, I don't think it's going to end up in my top 10. I think, um, you know, it's a movie that definitely is very much a Western. It it, it has a lot of, um, to me anyway, it sort of seemed to pay homage to a lot of uh, Westerns that came before. I mean, there's like the classic shot through the, the door frame kind of thing from Shane and like a billion other Western movies um, that like Greengrass almost like couldn't help himself, but, but throw one of those shots in there. And then there's this big, um, extended uh, gun fight scene on the side of a mountain that I, I feel like I've seen in, you know, 10 different Westerns or something at least. Um, but it, it's all really, really well executed, I thought. And I I, I read uh, Chris's reaction to the movie and, and his thoughts about, you know, um, Greengrass's filming style and, and all of that and how it didn't it sort of clashes with the with this material before I had a chance to see this movie. So I went into this film with that in mind. And I, I also wasn't really too bothered by it. I, I didn't, um, I don't know. I, I didn't find that it was, uh, it, that it, that it took me out of the movie too much either, or that it was too much of a clash there. So I, I thought, you know, it worked pretty well. It just seems like a, a sort of, um, uh, it's a movie where it like, it's very predictable. Like there's, there's not much special that happens plot wise. It's, it's pretty much exactly what you think it's pretty much the movie that you think it's going to be, um, which is good when you're talking about things like performance and, and, you know, just like sheer execution, uh, but bad if you're looking for anything like super surprising or like uh, subversive in the genre. So it, it's, it's very much like a straight down the middle kind of, um, 
you know, throwback kind of Western. So uh, it, it's quality. It's a solid movie, but um, yeah, nothing that, that really like lit my world on fire. So I actually, uh, I, I found myself thinking that it would have made for an interesting like pilot for some kind of limited series that would keep following, uh, you know, Tom Hanks and this, um, you know, uh, young girl character on a series of Western adventures. And it would be one that would be, you know, also cut from the same cloth as Western TV shows, obviously, and, you know, kind of strike the same chord that you would, you would say The Mandalorian is in, in Star Wars right now. But I, I like these uh, Tom Hanks and uh, this girl's character enough that I, I found myself interested in seeing, like, what their continued, you know, story would be if it, if it went on after the movie. Yeah, and I think it speaks very much to, like, you know, while at the same time being this old school kind of throwback, it speaks very much to the the uh, mentality that we have in the U.S. right now. It's it's a movie about truth and, and you know, spreading the truth across the the land and um you know the the uh there's this one extended sequence uh in the middle of the movie where he encounters this very you know th- this guy who's trying to um essentially like overthrow a small town and and sort of like has this this small mining community or whatever it is it's it's, it's basically old west donald trump is what they're yeah. really going for here <laughs> yeah uh and it's very much like it's not subtle at all but i thought it was effective and, and worked well and i think you could probably just i guess say apply that to the entire movie as a whole so uh that is news of the world i believe it's going to be out on christmas day i think um maybe in some theaters and then i think universal has that deal where it should be coming you know to streaming within you know i guess with they have the option to release it to streaming within 17 days i'm not sure exactly when this one will be um you know widely widely accessible for people to view at home but uh it shouldn't be too long so um yeah you can add that one to your queue uh all right let's move on to the next movie which is one night in miami um ht brad and i saw this ht let's start with you what did you think about one night in miami well this is a really phenomenal directorial debut from regina king and um this is it's movie that I really enjoyed the perform- the performances from. It uh, stars Kingsley Ben-Adir, Ellie Gorey, Aldous Hodge, and Le- Leslie Odom Jr. as the fictionalized versions of the great African-American icons, great black icons, Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke. And I think they're all really, really fantastic in this movie, which is based off a play. And um, I do think that, like, at, like many movies based off of stage plays it can't really shake that play feeling but I do think that Regina King does a really phenomenal job of making it look interesting and visually exciting and more than just four men sitting in a room having a really intense deep conversation about their responsibilities and privileges as uh, black artists and creators and and figures so it's um it's a movie that I uh was really like enraptured by and probably not one of my favorites of the year but um i just want to like i'm really like astonished by regina king's um directorial choices and and like her her debut here she's it's really great stuff from her yeah i thought it was a a very confident movie a very small sort of quiet movie i think it's like the perfect first film for uh, somebody to jump in and sort of like get their feet wet and and make sure that they truly know what they're doing before they you know take a, a stepping stone up up in the in the ranks of making uh, different types of films and I, I think this is like a really really solid uh, first you know at bat if you will um, we should note that Kemp Powers wrote the screenplay and he's the one who also wrote the play that HD mentioned and Kemp Powers is also one of the 
co-writers and co-directors of Pixar Soul, which is also coming out later this month. So he's having quite the moment right now. Um, Brad, what did you think about One Night in Miami? Uh, I actually think that I'm much more warm to this movie than you guys are. Not that it sounds like you didn't like it, but I uh, love this movie. I, I adore this movie. It's um, I'm a sucker for movies that unfold in this way where it's basically an, a feature length conversation between several characters. Um, so, like, you know, th- this reminded me, you know, in in some ways of The Breakfast Club and in some ways of before the Before Sunrise trilogy, uh, movies of that ilk. And the fact that it's, it has these four prominent, you know, black figures at the center of these conversations with these incredible performances. I, I think everyone in this movie uh, is outstanding, particularly uh, Leslie Odom Jr. as Sam Cooke. I think he's he's phenomenal. But uh, yeah, I, I just walked away um, really just feeling energized from this movie. And I think that the conversations in it are very um, provocative and, and poignant. And it, it has a lot to say through the eyes of these characters who didn't always see eye to eye when it comes to how to push forward the cause of uh, equality and fighting against racism and how to do it. And it's a conversation that is, um, you know, unfortunately still relevant today. And you see that some things haven't changed from the time that these um, these four men were in the spotlight and doing what they could to, to you know, help their community and help the black population at large. Um, so, yeah, this it was just a movie that I, I look forward to seeing what else Regina King can do because this was uh, a phenomenal first feature. Um, and I, I hope that we see a lot more from Kent Powers, too, because between this and Soul, um, he, he has put together some incredible screenplays. Yeah, I think my favorite part about this movie is uh, are those conversations that you've mentioned, Brad. Like that, that's like the the thrust of the film is like these four guys coming together uh, in the wake of um, Cassius Clay winning a, a prize fight and just like their celebration in a hotel room afterwards, basically. And and the whole movie is essentially just um, clashing ideals and perspectives about exactly uh, you know how to live up to the responsibilities that they have as um, black people in the spotlight in America. And I, I loved, you know, just like thinking about what they were saying, like the, the, these ideas are so um, um, relevant to what's going on right now. And, and it's, you know, especially in this year, in the wake of the George, the, the George Floyd uh, murder and, and, you know, the, the with America sort of being, um, I don't know what the word is, awoken, I guess, to to uh, the racial injustices that have been going on for years and years and years and years. I mean, more years than we can even count. Um, it's it feels especially timely. And and for people who are um, are for people who find themselves wondering how to balance the uh, you know, they're just their normal responsibilities of daily life and also trying to put forth progressive ideals and, and contribute to the cause and all of that stuff. I thought these conversations that these guys are having, um, you know, echo thoughts that I've had and, and many people I'm sure have had about exactly, you know, where's the line? What, what, how do you strike that balance between, um, you know, going too far in one direction, not doing enough. Um, and, and all of those ideas I thought were just really, really well in, in captured or, or encapsulated in, uh, one night in Miami. So, um, I'm not sure. Let's see. Uh, there's a limited theatrical release by Amazon on Christmas day. And then this one is coming to Amazon prime video on January 15th. So, uh, just about a month from now. Uh, okay. So that's one night in Miami. It sounds like we all, uh, liked it and Brad really, really loved it. So, um, Brad, let's, let's talk about a couple, a pair of movies that you and I watched, uh, the way back and the vast of night. Let's talk about the way back first. This is the, um, the Ben Affleck basketball movie. Uh, what did you think about this one? 
Uh, I really enjoyed this, and more than I thought I would. Um, I, I thought that it looked like it was going to be a solid sports drama. Uh, the fact that it comes from director Gavin O'Connor, who directed Warrior, was um, something that made me feel like it would have a little bit more uh, bubbling underneath it than just your standard uplifting, you know, sports story of a guy trying to get his life together and you know, inspiring kids to play play basketball and like you know, keep their lives going and make these right right decisions. And uh, I I was right because I feel like. This movie um, does more with the the formulaic sports story than you usually see to the point where uh, it goes beyond the typical ending of the sport of the you know, the sports story that you normally see in movies like this. And I was um, impressed by that because it goes against the grain of like this, this idea of that like oh like the, this happy ending of yeah they won they won the game and he's he's better now and all this kind of thing. But you realize that those kinds of things aren't always what fixes. The, the, the deep-seated, you know, demons in your life, the things that you're struggling against. And Ben Affleck's struggle in this is that um, he's an alcoholic because of a family tragedy. And that's something that isn't just so simply shaked by him getting his shit together for a few weeks and winning some basketball games. Uh, I think Ben Affleck is uh, fantastic in this movie. I think probably one of the better performances he's given uh, in recent years. And I, I like the the smattering of the supporting cast, too. It's interesting seeing somebody like uh, comedian Al Madrigal in a, a role like this, uh, a serious role as the assistant coach. And yeah, I, I walked away actually being pretty pretty impressed by this movie. It was better than uh, I thought it was going to be. Not that I thought it, would, it was going to be bad, but I just thought I knew exactly what to expect. Yeah, I think the thing that, that I thought elevated it a little bit, or at least maybe not elevated, but at least um, set it aside from a lot of the sort of typical formulaic stuff was the way that it, it really just concentrated on Ben Affleck's character, this this coach who was having problems. And like, uh, I feel like a lot of other sports movies go out of their way to make the uh, the students, the players, the basketball players, like give them well-rounded stories. And, and this movie just like doesn't even bother with that, really. Like you almost don't even know the players' names um, because it's so not interested in what's happening with them. I mean, it, there's one character that sort of serves as like, uh, the mentee to that that Ben Affleck sort of takes under his wing, uh, but aside from that, the the movie does not really spend very much time on the kids or their interpersonal relationships or the dynamics you know that that are happening on the team and all that kind of stuff. It's much more just you know through the lens of this guy and it sticks with his perspective and it's not the sort of wide ranging. Um, you know, remember the Titans-esque kind of thing that that has like a, a bigger scope in terms of the story. It's very like laser focused in that way. So I thought it was interesting on that front. Um, and and Ben Affleck is solid in it. It's clear that he's like working through some serious personal issues in <laughs> in this movie. Um, and, and I hope that this movie was like a cathartic experience for him. Um, but, uh, you know, e even even with that, like the that laser focus, I'm not sure that it it elevated it enough for me to be like, oh, this is a movie that I, you know, would absolutely say drop everything and go see this. I just thought it was kind of like a, oh yeah, that's a, that's a nice B movie, you know, not like a B movie, like a <laughs> Plan Nine from Outer Space, but like a, a you know, a, if you were on a grading scale, um, I would just give it a B. But uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> what, what do you think, Brad? What, how would you uh, grade this if you had to? Uh, I think I liked it more than that. I'd, I'd probably give it like uh, maybe an, an A minus. Um, it's it's one of those movies where I I really enjoyed it, and I would probably like put it on like in the background again while working or something something like that. But like. You know, it's it's not gonna make you know again not not gonna make my top ten, but I was I was still uh, fairly impressed and surprised by um, by its quality. 
All right. And then you and I also watched a film called The Vast of Night, which uh, I don't know about you, but I'll go first with this one, Brad. I, I loved this movie. I think this actually is going to be on my top 10 films of the year. Um, this is the directorial debut of a guy named Andrew Patterson. And um, man, I, I just this is one of those films It came out earlier this year. I mean, I think it's been on Amazon since like this summer or something. And I just I added it to my queue, you know, when it came out. But I just kind of forgot about it and didn't really think much of it. And I was just going through a list of 2020 movies trying to catch up before the end of the year and just sort of threw this on as a lark and was immediately just sucked into what this movie was. I didn't even really know what what to expect. And I was so blown away by what happened here. And I don't want to like set the bar too high because it's a very low budget movie. I think it was made for like $700,000 or something. Um, but I just thought, you know, the creativity on display in this movie uh, really blew me away. This was a, a fully mesmerizing experience. Uh, experience for me um it's set in the 1950s in a small town in new mexico and it's about this young switchboard operator who starts fielding calls from people in nearby towns who are reporting mysterious sightings in the sky and and there's this uh, electrical hum that that suddenly appears and so this switchboard operator and this uh, local radio dj team up to try to figure out what is going on with this audio frequency and and the entire town is basically in the local school gym watching a basketball team uh watching their basketball team play so it's really like the whole town is empty except for these two characters who are trying to figure out what's going on and it's like is it aliens is it not what's happening is, is there are there uh, military experiments what's what's going on here so i i thought it was just a totally immersive um like terrific sci-fi mystery but uh brad what do you think about this one uh yeah i'm right there with you i um at first it felt like it was going to be a little bit of like a uh, a slower burn but as it went on i just found myself getting caught up in how it creates suspense uh and tension and anticipation and like it's it's such a wordy script but it's done so well because everything that is said like you you hang on every word in many cases because as the mystery builds and you start learning more about uh what people think is going on and uh, people who feel like they might have insight into this mysterious uh situation uh, whether it's a caller on the radio or, or a local it just adds more and more layers of fascination fascination to it and because it's a low budget movie it does this just by setting the tone with the right ambiance with you know um really moody lighting or a, a fantastic score and some really impressive camera work too there's there's a, a long take so well several long takes in this movie uh that i was impressed as hell and really want to know how they pulled it off if they actually did do full-on single takes or if they stitched a couple takes together in some cases um but there's some really impressive stuff in this movie for a first feature like i think this guy really has a future in front of him is to become you know, a, a full-on, like, blockbuster filmmaker. Um, I And again, not to set the bar too high, but, like, I did get some, like, Spielberg Amblin vibes from it, but not to mm -hmm. the point where it feels like that's what he was trying for necessarily, um, because it's much more subtle and less in-your-face than, like, something like Super 8. And it almost makes me wish that this was what J.J. Abrams did with Super 8 um, instead, because it's handled so well. And it's uh, it, it presents it in an interesting way, too, because it, it almost makes it like an episode of uh, Twilight Zone. It's framed in this um, faux TV show 
bookend called Paradox Theater as like this is just like an episode that you're watching on a, uh, an old time 1950s television. And the vibe definitely uh, cap of the movie captures that uh, entirely. And it's just, yeah, it's um, it's a breeze to, to get through, even though it feels like it's slow to start with because it's dialogue heavy and um, and whatnot. But it, once you get into it, it's it's a quick, um, you know, 90 minute watch and it's very enjoyable. The movie that I kept coming back to as a comparison point is uh, Ryan Johnson's Brick, um, because I, I felt like both films feature these characters who speak in this really heightened stylized dialogue where it's almost like you have to parse what they're what they're even saying to like you have to really lean in and um i I had to watch the movie with closed captions on which i watch most things with closed captions on anyway but i i would recommend doing that for people uh, who who may you know be turned off to this in the in the first five minutes or something but yeah i think it settles in very very quickly and i just love the the way that it uh uses that dialogue that stylization to pull you into this world and and it almost like creates this alternate reality um, and, and that's added to, you know, the, the whole uh, framing device you mentioned sort of adds to that as well. Um, and it's, and it's no coincidence that the radio station is W O T W, uh, war of the worlds. Is that what the, uh, indeed supposed to be in a camera reference to? Yeah. Um, referencing what that Orson Welles, the classic, uh, Orson Welles reading of that. Um, Jacob, I think you saw this at a film festival last year, didn't you? Yeah, Chris and I both saw this at Film Festival last year, and we're okay. the only people on Earth who did not like it. Yes. Oh, wow, wow. <laughs> Neither one of you liked it? Interesting, nope. okay. I, I literally only once. I love the opening tracking shot that 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 very, that Brad was talking about, that very long, it's like almost endless, where it just, the camera just keeps going. It like goes through a stadium, and it goes down a street, and it goes through a parking lot. And when the movie started, I was like, holy shit, this is going to be fucking amazing and then the minute the tracking shot stops i was like oh never mind i don't like this movie and <laughs> it's like all so like i i think the director has a lot of promise i'm sorry i don't have his name in front of me right now but i think I, i'm very excited to see what what they do next because they clearly have you know the chops to to make something compelling visually but uh the minute that tracking shot ends I it, the movie lost me and it, it lost me even more where like there's a scene where the two main characters go and see this like old woman and I was just like oh my god this is how oh, I love that scene no yeah. it's bad it's bad it's <laughs> it's bad I you know it's not a bad movie you know I don't think it's like oh that was awful I just you know uh, like Jacob said we're in the minority here and everyone raves about this and I just I'm in the corner like what the hell is going on it's like I mean I'm just like I feel like I'm losing my mind a little bit. I was like, what is everyone seeing in this movie that I'm not? But, you know, to to each their own. Wow. Yeah, I, I like it more than Chris, I think. There's a – it peaks for me an early phone call that one character takes where a man uh, reflects on his experiences in the military and what he may or may not have experienced. And I thought, ooh, this is good. This is a fascinating use of audio, of keeping character off screen, of building a mystery. And I think that mystery – is built up to be really exciting and then it fails to deliver on that mystery on every possible level. Wow. Okay. Well, there, there you have it folks. Uh, I would just recommend. <laughs> so it sounds like the only movie. thing we can do is uh, have me watch it and break the tie on this, on yeah. whether the vast night is, of night is good or not. I would you love should to definitely know. see it. There's so much promise here and some people like it. You should absolutely watch the vast of night. Chris and I are in the vast minority guys. This was a huge hit. Uh, I think it was South by Southwest last year. Right, Chris? Uh, no, it's Fantastic Fest. Well, it's Fantastic Fest. Okay, uh, and like people raved about it. It, it. Like 
won a lot of acclaim and Amazon, I think, picked it up like before it even it was at the festival. They were really into it. it was, Amazon really hyped it up. It, they made a Mondo poster for it at the, at the festival, which you only do for movies that like the, the people involved feel really good about. I mean, it, it Chris and I are the super wow. minority. I can't emphasize that enough about it. if you've this if Brad and Ben uh, interested you at all, you should absolutely watch this and, and then privately come to me and Chris if you agree with us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. You can tell me if you hated it too. I'm just, I just like Jacob, I I felt like um, this was the most uh, confident and and maybe. I don't know about interesting, but the most confident directorial debut since I saw uh, the standoff at Sparrow Creek, which is a movie that you and I both love. Um, and I just, I don't know the it felt they're very different movies, but just the, the confidence behind the camera, um, it, it shone through for me in a big way. So uh, I, I really love the vast night. It sounds like Brad did too. So uh, yeah, I would be, I mean, if, if you listeners out there watch this movie, I would love for you guys to write in and just like, let us know what you think about it. I'd love to know, like uh, if, you know what the what the uh, general consensus is from like audience people who uh, audience members who weren't at in a film festival environment and and are just watching it and catching up with it now. So uh, that is on Amazon Prime Video right now. Uh, okay, so let's get into what I've been watching. I watched a film called Promising Young Woman, which I think Brad and Chris talked about not too long ago. I loved this movie. Uh, this was uh, written and directed by Emerald Fennell, who I believe has directed some stuff, uh, some episodes of uh, Killing Eve. Um, she may have actually been like the, the showrunner of season two of Killing Eve, but uh, or at least a, a, a major creative force behind that season of the show. Um this movie stars Carrie Mulligan, who I haven't seen in anything in a little while, and I thought she just absolutely killed it. I thought she, this was, this is the best, you know, I, Carrie Mulligan had a run there in like the, you know, 20, I don't know, probably 2008 to 2013, 2014 or something, where she seemed to be in everything and was very, very good in a lot of things. Um, but I, I don't know if maybe she's still been doing stuff at that clip, but I just haven't seen it. But, uh, man, I, I felt like this was a really, really strong, um, if you want to call it a comeback performance. I, I don't think she's been gone that long, but just a, a really great reemergence of her as like a, holy shit, this woman can act the hell out of whatever she's given. Uh, Bo Burnham is in this movie, and uh, he's a, a really solid uh, supporting player in this. Um, it's just kind of wild to think that he directed eighth grade and <laughs> is like a well-known, you know, uh, comedy persona. Um, and just, uh, thinking about him, like as an actor, it's just so strange. Cause I think this is the first thing I've seen him in, uh, maybe since he directed eighth grade, but, uh, man, the, the cast is really solid in this. I mean, you guys have talked about it, uh, already, so I don't need to go into too much detail, but this is a, um, a movie that wants to push some buttons. And I think it just does. I, I don't I don't know if there's a misstep in this entire movie. I think um, I need to research this more because I, I understand that there's some controversy about the ending or or at least uh, some controversy about um, some of the things that happen in the movie. And I um, I just thought everything worked really, really well for me. And I I want to know uh, why people are um, why some people are, are reacting negatively to this. Um, but that, that's work that I have to do, obviously, off mic. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, that, that's just, I, I bring that up just to say that uh, I, I think there are two camps for this film. And um, Brad and Chris, remind me where you guys fell on Promising Young Woman. I really liked it, even though I think that it's, it's a little bit muddled in its uh, overall message. Like, I appreciate what it is what it's trying to do and like how 
bombastic it is in that approach and like how strong it comes on in that way and how you know in like the intensity and Kerry Mulligan's you know menacing performance but um I, there's nothing controversial about the ending to me it just seems like it's a little I don't know far-fetched to me mm-hmm. I can see that Chris what do you think about it yeah I'm, I'm pretty much in the same camp I I don't love this movie. this is another one where I don't hate it but everyone around me is like this is one of the best movies of the year and I'm over here like is it though? I, I I think it's really well made. I think Carrie Mulligan is great. I think the direction is, is great. Um, but there's this, the way the third act unfolds. Um, it's not that I'm unhappy with how it unfolds. It's that it, it's really hard to talk about. Cause like, you know, I have to, I can't, it is. Yeah. I can't say what's wrong with it without giving away spoilers, but yeah, basically a series of things happen that are, incredibly unlikely and you know i'm all for suspension of disbelief you know i movies aren't you know movies don't have to be a hundred percent realistic and i know this film in particular is you know exists in this sort of like heightened reality but there's this chain of events that happens and it would take like a mind reader to predict all this stuff that happens and it just really took me out of the movie because i was like oh i like i was almost with it up until like the the last like half hour and then and then it lost me. But Interesting. One, okay. One thing I will say is that just despite its shortcomings, there is a good chance that this movie like I, I like this movie um enough and love Carrie Mulligan's performance and, and certain aspects of it that it still could end up being on my top ten list. Um because I think there are so many things in it that are so good, despite the fact that it does have these shortcomings in its uh in its climax. It, I mean, Chris, I totally understand what you're saying there. There's there's a moment uh, or a sequence where it almost feels like uh, Heath Ledger's Joker would have had to or- orchestrate <laughs> yeah. everything like to, to that degree um, for all of this to play out. But I think I was just so uh, sucked in and so on the movie's level at that point that I just didn't really care about like the the logic and, and some of the things that went into that that final, uh, you know, uh, domino, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, pushing of the domino, which is something that I normally would get hung up on. But I think the movie just did a, such a great job of, of like pulling me into, um, you know, it, its wavelength that I, I was just like on board with it. So uh, that movie comes out. Uh, it's called Promising Young Woman. It comes out, um, I think, in theaters on December 25th. So Christmas this year. I'm not sure when it's going to come out uh, on streaming, but I, I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't recommend seeing any movie in any theater right now. Um, but uh, I would definitely recommend watching this movie just so you can sort of see what people are talking about and and have your, you know, come, you know, create your own uh, opinion about this one, because I think there's going to be a lot to talk about with this in the in the months to come. So uh, let's see, what else did I watch? Oh, I, I caught up with um, Sofia Coppola's On the Rocks, which is streaming on Apple TV Plus right now. I thought this one was kind of a miss for me. Uh, I, you know, this is the film with um, Bill Murray and Rashida Jones as a father and daughter who uh, basically drive around New York and try to figure out whether uh, the daughter's husband is having an affair. And uh, Marlon Wayans plays the husband, and I just thought he was miscast. Like, what, what is Marlon Wayans doing in this movie? Um, it, I mean, it's not like he's doing, like, scary movie-level uh, Marlon Wayans acting. It's just, it, it kind of took me out of it. Like, his very presence took me out of it a little bit. And then uh, Bill Murray is, like, you know, he's supposed to be playing this sort of likable asshole, and he just went a little bit too far into the asshole uh, uh portion for me to really uh engage with 
<laughs> with his performance on any sort of real level. Um, Rashida Jones, I thought, I, I think she's great, but she just kind of, in this movie, doesn't really have that much to do. She just sort of follows Bill Murray around like a puppy dog. And, and I don't know, the whole film just kind of felt like uh, more of an exercise than a story that needed to be told. It was like, um, I don't know, Sofia Coppola's, you know, normally she's a pretty dynamic and, and um, uh, I don't know what you would call her. I, I would just say a dynamic filmmaker. And this movie did not have that dynamism that I, I associate with her storytelling. It just sort of felt inert and and kind of like um, disconnected and in, in in a way that, you know, Lost in Translation and several of her other movies do not. Uh, and I just felt like it was almost like she was just completely out of touch, uh, <laughs> you know, writing the script. Like, what are we talking about here? What what is this movie about? This is this is it. This is what we're doing. So I don't know. It's it's a movie that I think had the potential to be a lot of fun, and the way that the tone is struck is not really that. And so I I just struggled to find. I struggled to get on this one's wavelength. I, I struggled to to understand what it was that Sofia Coppola was trying to do or, or the reason that she wanted to make this movie. So, um, HT, I know you had, you, I remember you talking about this one and, and not being thrilled with the ending, if I recall correctly, but, um, how was on the rocks, uh, sat with you in, in the time since you've seen it? I think I'm a little bit uh, warmer to it than you are. I wouldn't say that it's a complete miss. I do think it's a lot slighter than a lot of um, Sofia Coppola's other films. And uh, I completely disagree with you about Bill Murray's performance. I think it's the saving grace of this movie, and I think he's fantastic, and it taps into his inner charisma, like inherent charisma in a way that uh, really works for the film. Um, but as to like what it's about, uh, I think it's something that is sort of reflective of both Sofia Coppola and Rashida Jones' own relationships with their more famous fathers and, like, living in that shadow of their father mm-hmm. and um, how that affects and can can um, negatively affect them. So I do think that there's more to this movie than, like, what you what you brought away from it. But, um, yeah, I, I wouldn't say it's, like, one of my favorite uh, Coppola films, Sofia Coppola films. Um, but it's not nearly as, as bad as you're making it out to be. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, okay, another movie that's on uh, Apple TV Plus is called Wolf Walkers. This is an animated movie that, uh, HA, I think you just wrote about uh, in a, an edition of our quarantine stream column. Um, before I throw this one over to you, I will just say that I really enjoyed this movie. I thought the the uh, animation style, it comes from this, um, this company called uh, Cartoon Saloon, I thought the animation style on this was just gorgeous to look at. I mean, the the um, talk about stylization, like the the um, the character designs and the production designs of, of the world in this movie, uh, which is like this, um, I think, 1600s Ireland, like a, this sort of, uh, uh, you know, this this castle uh, and and city environment and then the woods that are right outside of it, I thought it was all um, just so unique and like looking at a, a painting. Um, it, you know, we, we talked a lot about soul and how that movie uh, looks so photo real. And this movie is like the complete opposite of that and, and just shows um, how uh, like the wide range of animation styles and how, um, you know, different types of, uh, of approaches can be equally effective in their, in the, the stories that they're trying to tell. Um, this one I just thought was, a really, really wonderful mix of uh, the sort of like, 
uh, mythology and um, and and uh, it's basically about this girl who becomes a wolf walker who is this you know she can when she goes to sleep she uh, takes the form of a wolf essentially and her father who plays this wolf hunter who is uh, tasked by the the lord protector of this castle kingdom to wipe out all of the wolves from the the nearby forest and the uh, conflict that arises there um and it's really like this father-daughter story um you know wrapped up in this this genre framework and i thought it was really really effective and um i just love the the melding of the visual style that they chose um, with this specific type of, uh, you know, like ancient Celtic-esque material. So, um, HT, I, I, from the, I have not had a chance to read your quarantine stream piece, but from the headline of that piece, uh, it sounds like you really enjoyed this one too, right? Oh, yeah. This is definitely one of my favorites of the year. And not only did I write a quarantine stream about it, I wrote a, a glowing review for it too, which you can, you can read on SlashFilm.com. <laughs> But Wolf Walkers is just a stunning, astonishing piece of work. Um, and I have loved everything that Cartoon Saloon has done so far. Uh, films like Song of the Sea, The Secret of Kells, The Breadmaker, Breadwinner, sorry, The Breadwinner. And I feel like Wolf Walkers is a sort of culmination of all of the the works, the films that they've done so far. And also they're most commercial, most accessible because it has a more typical sort of adventure story while having a villain. It's the first time that one of their films has, has a villain uh, too. And uh, it like sort of toes that line between art house and um, entertainment in a way that's really, really exciting and fun to watch. And um, I think there's an added layer to this movie, too, and especially as it Cartoon Saloon being one of the last bastions of 2D hand-drawn animation, in that, that this movie is about sort of a disappearing culture, a disappearing tradition and myth, and um, how it's not exactly about trying to save it or retain it in a way, but that this, this disappearing thing this element of the world, this last magic in the world still exists somewhere. And it's sort of in the dark crevices of our world in the deepest of the forests and that it'll always exist. And um, it's kind of a, an ode to that disappearing tradition as well as I feel like an ode to the disappearing tradition of hand-drawn animation. So I really love that it has that extra layer to it and how, yeah, it just looks stunning. It's so such such a such a beautiful movie. And um, I've always, you know, beat the drum for hand-drawn animation, but I think that this movie really elevates and transcends what we expect even of hand-drawn animation. There's this one sequence that um, is done when you when uh, uh, the uh, main character sees like wolf vision and it's it gives like this trippy sort of black light um, aesthetic to it that uh, is almost synesthetic. It's really, really gorgeous. So um, you want to, you, you can see me rave about Wolf Walkers on, on a uh, slash film.com, but I, I highly, highly recommend this movie. I love that take HT, the, the idea that it's about this vanishing, you know, magic in the world and also about uh, like a commentary on the vanishing art of 2D animation. That's really great. I had not thought about that, but uh, that I feel like you can absolutely make a case for that. Um, okay, so the last movie that I watched is a film on Netflix. It is a, a horror film called His House and um, a horror film. I mean, I don't know. It, it's almost more of a, a I don't know if we want to like open up this can of worms, but it, to me, it, it almost felt like a little bit more like a thriller instead of a straight up horror movie. But um, it, it is it definitely has horror film vibes. Um, it's about this uh, pair of refugees who flee 
uh, South Sudan and they come to the UK and they live in this really small, I guess, town on the, the outskirts of uh, London. And they're basically given um, the, you know, they're, they're given a house to stay in and told, okay, you can't have any friends over. You can't have, you can't play basketball in the street. You can't make any noise. You can't do it. They have like this huge list of restrictions because they're sort of on this, like, um, this, uh, uh, I don't know what the word would be, but uh, like a, uh, a period where their, their case is going to be heard and, and they, they're on like probation almost like they have to uh, make a good impact on society and they'll be able to, you know, stay in this area. Um, and so they have their, the, one of the things that they're given is this house and they're told that they're not allowed to leave this house. Like, I mean, they can leave to go to work or, or to whatever, but they can't move. Um, they have to essentially be kept in, in one place. So the government can sort of keep tabs on them and be able to check in whenever they need to and things like that. And of course this house, uh, ends up being haunted and it's not just like a, any haunted house movie. It's that they bring the haunting with them because of this trauma that they experienced or, or went through or, uh, caused in their own pasts. So, um, there are these, uh, bodies that are like in the walls and, and who emerge when the lights are off and, um, who who sort of like haunt them within this new uh, environment that they're in. And I just thought it was a, a really um, smart movie, a really uh, a kind of a quiet horror movie. There's not like a ton of jump scares or anything like that. Um, I, I think it's a film that that makes you think about the, uh, you know, when, when you read in the in uh, headlines about refugees and all that kind of stuff you 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 uh, or I anyway, like intellectually, I understand what's happening, but like um, it's been a while since I've seen a movie that sort of taps into what that experience is like for people on, you know, on the, on a ground level, on a, on a personal level. Um, and just thinking about these restrictions that they face or, or, or the restrictions that they have to adhere to, or else they might get deported and like what that means for their lives and like how strict those restrictions actually are. Um, and then this idea of, uh, of this, trauma that they're, they've brought with them. And there's a reveal that happens, uh, I don't know, midway through this movie or something that um, recontextualizes everything that, that you see, uh, you've seen so far that I thought was just super, super effective and will probably be one of the moments that I argue for in our, uh, our you know, best moments of 2020 list. So uh, I'm curious, has anybody else here seen His House yet? I, I think Jacob and Chris, especially as like the horror guys uh, on this podcast, I think this would, would be right up your alley. Yeah, I've, I've seen, I actually wrote about it in my last um, streaming column. Um, yeah, it's, it's great. It's, it's, it has this empathy to it that you don't really get in horror movies that often. And that really uh, impressed me just how like, I don't want to say kind the movie is because it's, you know, it's a scary movie and there's mm -hmm. really dark things that happen in the movie, but uh, there's a lot in this movie about, you know, second chances and, and forgiveness and understanding. And that really impressed me. I, you know, I just, the way that's handled because it's handled in this really, I guess, mature way is how I'm putting it. Like, yeah. I, you know, I love horror movies. I, I, I'm, I'm all about horror movies, but a lot of horror movies don't have, these sort of things on their mind. So when one comes along that does something like this, I was like, Oh, Holy shit. This is, this is like, you know, this, it's a horror movie with something to say, which 
doesn't happen as often as I would like it. So I, I, I really think this is a great movie. I wish, I feel like this is one of those movies that like it went to Netflix and no one noticed it. I wish like it got more of a push. I wish more people talked about it. And, you know, so uh, yeah, I, I highly recommend people check this out. Even if you're like, you're not a horror fan, I think you would find something meaningful in this movie. Yeah. A hundred percent. Jacob, have you seen this one yet? It's on my catch-up list uh, this week, fingers crossed. <laughs> it's, it slipped through the cracks a little bit, and I'm regretting it based on this conversation. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't even heard of it, really, um, and, until a couple months ago when I think the uh, Slash Filmcast um, reviewed it, uh, like, right when it came out at the end of October. And I just uh, I didn't get a chance to listen to that full episode because I wanted to watch the movie for myself. And I just, again, was going through 2020 catch-up stuff and, and wasn't expecting much from this, but was kind of blown away by it. And I think um, the one other thing that I'll say about it is that, like, a lot of the movie just takes place in this house, and it, it kind of is like a little bit of a shabby, run-down house uh, but I was very impressed with the visual um, tricks and and some of the production design elements of the movie where it expands the the scope of the movie in dream sequences and stuff like that in really, really interesting ways that that sort of open the movie up from just this little claustrophobic, um, you know, uh, small sort of one location type of movie. And, and there's this one really, really gorgeous shot where a character is... Uh, is like eating a meal and the camera pulls back and reveals that the, uh, the environment that he's in is completely changed. And I, I just thought that was like a really standout moment. So, um, the film is called his house. It is streaming on Netflix right now. And that is all that I've been watching. So, uh, Jacob and HT, both of you had a chance to see the personal history of David Copperfield. I know this is a, a movie that Chris liked a lot. So what did you guys think about it? Um, Jacob, let's start with you. Yeah, this is terrific. Uh, one issue I have with a lot of the way we talk about Charles Dickens is that uh, I think the way he's taught in schools, the way a lot of Americans in particular uh, know about him, they think of him as stodgy, and a lot of the movies that based on his work are stodgy. And they ignore the fact that Dickens as a writer is full of wit and whimsy and great character names and bizarre humor and like great gags, but who is also very political, who wrote uh, these really entertaining, often um, entertaining tragic stories because he had an eye for actually trying to make civil action and make things change in the England of his time, the 1800s. And this combination of politics and drama and wacky, weird character comedy often gets really stripped down into like, you know, stagey BS in lots of Dickens adaptations. And Armando Iannucci, the director here, who best known for, uh, you know, shows like Veep and movies like Death of Stalin, leans very heavily on Charles Dickens' comedy and how really funny he is and how wild his characters are and how they all have such great names. I mean, if you look at the list of character names here, they're just absolutely incredible. Mr. Macabre, Edward Murdstone, Pigotti, Betsy Trotwood, uh, just names that lodge in your brain. You dry a heap. Names that have become, you know, literary archetypes who, who they, they lodge in you so deeply that they it be referenced, you know, 150, 170 years later after this book was published. Anyway, I'm a big fan of this book. I think it's my favorite Charles Dickens book. I read it all a thousand plus pages of it back in the day. And this movie is under two hours long. It manages to feel like a pretty comprehensive adaptation with a few noteworthy cuts uh, running at full speed. It manages to be extremely fast paced, without feeling rushed. And it reminds me of my memories of the book more than the book itself. Whereas I can't tell you every single thing that happened in a thousand page plus of that novel, uh, but all exists in this whirlwind of memories and moments. And 
this adaptation is that it's a whirlwind of moments. It's the main character played by Dev Patel, the, the wonderful Dev Patel, uh, having a really difficult life full of ups and downs and learning that, you know, if you don't have a family, you, you got to make your own and real wealth is the community you build around yourself. I think this is an, this is probably my favorite Charles Dickens movie ever. Uh, HT, what do you think about this one? Oh, I feel, I don't know if I can add to anything after you so eloquently just gushed about it because I, I love the personal history of David Copperfield. And um, David Copperfield is not actually one of the Dickens books that I've read. I've only read, I think, a, Great Expectations and, of course, Christmas Carol. Um, so going into this movie, I had forgotten for some reason that this was a Charles Dickens book. And um, I had only remembered that it was Armando Inucci and um, Death Patel starring in it. So five minutes into this movie, I was like, wow, this movie is really Dickensian. And then I, <laughs> I realized the truth. And um, I was like, wow, either I'm, I'm very smart or very dumb because uh, Armando Iannucci manages to capture that Dickensian spirit so much despite taking some creative liberties in his depiction of um of the of the story but uh i actually had uh expected almost it for inucci who has been mostly a satirical um like a po political sat uh, satirist to take even more creative liberties but he felt this is probably the most sincere and straightforward i've ever seen inucci be and he just is it's like a big love letter to charles dickens and all of his works and it's his whimsy and his uh, wit, and it's just such a wonderful movie to watch. I absolutely loved every minute of it. I loved watching Dev Patel, who is fantastic in it. I love all the character actors who are in this. I did not know that Peter Capaldi was in this until he popped up, and I was very excited because, like, like right before I was watching this movie, I'd been watching Peter Capaldi fan videos from Doctor Who, <laughs> and I was like, wow, he's here. So, and everyone is just so fantastic in this movie and um it's just it's such a delight i uh, absolutely adore the personal history of david david copperfield yeah I, i'm looking at the cast list and like if i had to pick a favorite character i don't know if i could like i mean there's a, there's a running bit where david copperfield himself uh is based on charles dickens uh it's the closest thing dickens ever wrote to an autobiography he fictionalized large portions of his life people he knew splintered portions of himself out in the characters and it's a running thing where David Copperfield, you know, Dev Patel's character, will write down uh, people's names and uh, like something they say, and he has his box full of like memories of people he's met. And this movie is such a beautiful portrait of the people we know and why they matter and why the found family that he has, uh, you know, is so important. And I'm looking for this list. Like, I don't know if if I love Peter McCauley's Mr. McCobber more than I love Hugh Laurie's Mr. Dick, or if I. Or if I love Tilla Swinton's uh, Betsy Trotwood um, more more than like someone else, but it's just it's just I this movie filled me with so much joy, and it's a movie in, in a year where we were all isolated <laughs> so much and we're striving for connection. David Copperfield, uh, the book and the and the movie, understand that uh, are, are about connection and about a how we build these connections over the course of a lifetime and how they inform us and why they matter and. It's a really terrific movie, and I rented it on Amazon. I'm not sure if it's streaming anywhere. It was it was worth the five ninety nine on Amazon, and I recommend it for everybody on this podcast before we do our end of the year discussions. 
And one more thing I want to add is that from my understanding of, of David Copperfield, it's a morality play, uh, which means that uh, Charles Dickens in writing this uh, meant to create a character who was try who went through several trials and tribulations and would learn towards the end of, of uh, how to live by great morals and everything like that. And that is something that's a little bit more on the dated side, especially in English literature. But I feel like uh, personal history manages to bring that morality play aspect forward and not make it feel as stilted as you would think um, as the perspective of Dickens works are and it feels like something really fresh and and like a and really um, refreshing yeah. in the uh, meantime she... we need oh sorry go ahead Ben no go ahead I was gonna make a final joke for me and HT and only people have seen this movie only but it makes me want to put a sign in my front yard demanding that donkeys stay away <laughs> uh, is that a Doctor Who reference no, it's a Dr. David Copperfield reference. Okay, all right. Uh, H.C., you mentioned uh, Peter Capaldi, and, and just speaking of Doctor Who uh, actors, uh, Matt Smith is uh, one of the supporting people in his house, so maybe that that will be a little bit of extra convincing uh, that you might need to, to check that film out. So. Where is his house streaming again? Uh, it's on Netflix. Okay, let's check it out. All right, Jacob, let's move to you. Uh, what have you been watching? I'll try to go a little rapid fire because it's movies we talked about a lot already. <laughs> I find up with David Fitcher's Mank, finally. I'm on Team Mank. This is a very specific movie for very specific tastes. It's uh, by far the most inaccessible film <laughs> David Fincher has ever made. There's not a popular bone in this film structure. It is just, do you like 1930s Hollywood stories? Do you like uh, uh, 1930s politics in the United States? And most importantly, do you like tales about how uh, writing deadlines are terrifying? If all those things are true for you, uh, Mank is your movie. I really, really dug this. Uh but it also is inaccessible. I had to literally pause it halfway through. My wife had to literally ask me, I don't know what the hell is going on. Can you tell me what the hell is going on? <laughs> it, is, it is not forgiving for people who do not know the names and personalities of, of early classic Hollywood. And that's David Fincher's prerogative as a director, what he chooses to think is important for you to know and what not to know. Uh, but I was really won over by this film. And by even though it plays fast and loose with history in many ways, uh, like the real Herman J. Mankiewicz did not have the certain qualms about certain things he does in this movie, but the whole thing works so successfully as uh, a portrait of a time and a place uh, and of a Hollywood that we glamorize too much and gets really taken to task here. Uh, it's, I really like Mink. Uh, that's it. That's it for Mink. Everyone else has seen it. <laughs> All right. So you're team Mink. Are you team run? I am team run. Uh, this is a new film from the director of Searching, uh, Anish Chaganti, and Run is very good. I know people have issues with third act, and I do a little bit too. I do think it peters out a little bit. But for a film that is borrowing a lot of familiar elements and is leaning very heavily on thriller thriller tropes we've seen before, it manages to feel fresh for a number of reasons. Uh, one, because Kira Allen is the wheelchair-using uh, protagonist who is who slowly learns that her mother is not as well-meaning as she thought she was, uh, like, in the understatement of a century. Uh, she's terrific, and she lends such a uh, physicality to the performance, as well as just being a damn good actress. And the movie's smart. Like, so many thrillers are undone because you think, oh, if somebody had said something here, uh, the entire plot falls apart. Run is ahead of you there. The characters all do the right thing. They're just up against a villain in a situation that is uh, also ahead of them. And... Uh, we'll talk about this more in our end-of-the-year conversations because I think Run is very, very smart with how it treats the supporting cast and the decisions they make. Uh, anyway, what's next on my list here, Ben? You have, I, I, I'm several tabs away from it. 
Uh, uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic the Hedgehog, yes. Uh, up there with Mank and Run. Uh, no, <laughs> no, Jacob, I want you to go five minutes on Sonic the Hedgehog. <laughs> okay. Sonic the Hedgehog uh, by director Jeff Fowler. I am not a Sonic fan. I'm a Mario kid. I grew up with Nintendo. Uh, I think Sonic games are generally actively bad. So I have no nostalgia for Sonic the Hedgehog like so many people do. But Sonic the Hedgehog is a totally fine movie. It is not made for me. It is made for families. It is made for children. And it's made with positivity. There's... Like, none of the cynical crap I, I associate with, like, Elf and the Chipmunks or other, you know, live-action CG hybrids. Like, the movie feels it comes from a really honest, personal, loving place. Sonic the Hedgehog, voiced by uh, Ben Schwartz from Parks and Recreation and other great comedies, he's not phoning it in. He, he's giving a full-on performance to Sonic, and he's sweet and fun and lovable and just annoying enough that you understand why characters would reject him at first, but you come around on him. And I think Jim Carrey here is the villain, is Dr. Robotnik. He's, he's, just, he's, going, he's just doing 90s Jim Carrey. He's retreated into his old self. I didn't know I wanted that until this. I was really, really thrilled to see Jim Carrey being a wild and wacky guy he used to be, as opposed to you know the more serious actor he's been you know proven he could be, but also kind of been in that area for a little too long now. And if someone, 20 years from now, if the world still exists, and a guy in his mid-20s comes to me and said, I love Sonic the Hedgehog. I watched as a kid. It's a nostalgia favorite. I wouldn't be mad because... There's so much crap. There's so much egregious, cynical crap uh, from movies like this that take a beloved character, make him CGI, and put him a bunch of these live-action actors. And Sonic does not have any of those tropes. It is a genuinely nice, warm, funny, totally pleasant thing. And I'm not mad at Sonic in any way whatsoever for existing, whereas I'm mad at Alan the Chipmunks for existing. <laughs> All right, uh, what's that, five minutes, HD? That's, that yes. sounds close enough. Yeah. <laughs> is anyone else here uh, seen Sonic? Am I crazy? Yes, you're crazy. Sonic the Hedgehog is it's not it's not good. It's just <laughs> not good. You're tra- we're talking about a character whose ability is to like speed like crazy uh, as fast as he can. It is so insanely fast, and he spends almost the entire movie in a truck with James Marsden. Like you, you, you're gonna put Sonic inside of a truck for for almost this entire movie. It doesn't make any damn sense. And as much as I love. 90s, over-the-top, zany Jim Carrey. It just doesn't work here. And as much as I love Ben Schwartz and how much he dedicated to this performance at Sonic the Hedgehog, does great vocal work here. It, it just it does not work for me in, on, on any level whatsoever. It's just as messy as any of those live-action uh, animation hybrids, Alvin and the Chipmunks or what, what, whatever any of the other ones are. It's just a total mess and nightmare to me. I'm not going to go too hard to bat for Sonic the Hedgehog because it's Sonic the Hedgehog and I have more movies to talk about. But, 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 but. A character who can go as fast as you want, so you can travel across the entire country in, in like a moment if you wanted to, not being able to go somewhere because he lacks direction. He's in the truck, Brad, because he can go as fast as he wants, but has nowhere to go. Ooh, I haven't seen this movie, but boo. Yes, thank you, Chris. <laughs> anyway. I saw this movie, and I think it's like fine to what, not great, but I, I don't think you're wrong. I'm not wrong either. Uh, I'm, uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, we'll talk about Sonic more uh, in the future. Not for best of the year, but I'll be bringing a few moments from this movie in, <laughs> into our conversation. For the, it will, None of them will make the list of our best moments of the year, but I'm just going to bring a few of them up. Best of uh, luck, Jacob. All right, let's yeah. talk about uh, Sound of Metal. A movie that will make my best of the year list and will have moments on our <laughs> best moments of the year list. Sound of Metal from Darius Martyr. We talked about this before already. Uh, this is Riz Ahmed as a uh, heavy metal drummer who loses his hearing. And it is a uh, powerful, like, 
devastating to watch movie. Uh, Riz Ahmed probably gives the best perfor- lead performance of the year. Uh, I'm also very won over by uh, Paul Ratchy, who plays the uh, uh, leader of a uh, household uh, of of deaf uh, people. And he, he uh, Paul Ratchy himself is not deaf, but he is a child of deaf parents. He's fluent in sign language, and he gives this incredibly brutal, real, heartbreaking performance as a man who's dedicated himself to trying to teach people who have lost their hearing that they are, you know, as viable as anybody else. And him and Riz Ahmed have so many incredible scenes together. Uh, this is an amazing movie. Stream on Amazon. We talked about it a lot already on this show. I don't need to double down on what everybody else has already said, but Sound of Metal is one of the best films of the year. It's the best acted film of the year. Uh, watch it loud. Turn up your sound because uh, the way it uses uh, noise and sound and the way it chooses not to use it is stunning. Uh, it's an incredible film. Uh, Sound of Metal, Amazon. Uh, watch it before we talk about it at length in our end of the year stuff. Uh, yes. Uh, end of the year stuff as well. Uh, Boy State, documentary we talked about a few weeks ago uh, about the assembly of 17-year-old boys in the Texas Capitol to roleplay government. Uh, it is a frustrating, hilarious, tragic, kind of amazing documentary. As somebody who lives in Texas, I nodded a lot with a lot of the bullshit these kids spout as a play government and essentially uh, parrot the things their parents have been saying. And of course, uh, there is some hope in the darkness. I think that film is far more hopeful than people give it credit for. Because one thing it's made very clear is that most of these kids are just kids. They're saying the, the same crap their parents have said. And hopefully when they grow up and move out of their homes, they'll find the world is much bigger, better, and different. And it, it's not an accident that Several of the main subjects, the people who, who are taking the boys to experiment far more seriously are those with stuff to lose, with stuff they care about. Uh, namely, the characters of Stephen and Renee, who are the uh, uh, non-white liberal characters who find themselves in positions of quote-unquote power in the simulated government. And they are two of the most inspiring characters of the year. And I would, I really, really uh, hope that uh, people watch this movie and take away that Stephen and Renee are the future, not the most of the people on display in this movie. Although there is one character who is a terrifying villain uh, who reminds me so much of like young Karl Rove, young Stephen Miller, just the, the kind of next generation evil who needs to be stopped at all costs. And uh, so it's, it's a mixture of that. It's a mixture of realizing next generation is bringing with it a lot of hope, but also a lot of like built in, boiled in already fully aware evil. And I am, I'm glad Boys State exists to uh, highlight both these on film. Uh, it's really good. Stream on Apple. It's pre- stream on Apple uh, TV Plus if you have that subscription. Otherwise, you know, seek it out. It is really good. Uh, Chris, I know you were had hesitant about this. I, it will not make you feel better about the world, but I also do think that it's not as miserable as I think you're thinking it will be. No, I will. I will never ever watch this. Even based on what you're saying right now, just like my blood is boiling. So I'm not. Even if it like has like like you're saying that that slight hopefulness i'm not going to be able to handle all the other stuff i'll just spend the whole movie like grinding my teeth to powder so i uh, thank you boy state but no thank you (laughs) all right my last movie in my uh year and uh catch up this may be more controversial than me liking sonic and this is uh the new film not new film but uh the film shirley from josephine decker starring elizabeth moss as writer shirley jackson this film was a big hit at sundance it was reviewed very positively on the site by chris I think Shirley is a big pile of bullshit. I think it's boring. I think it's camp, but, un- but unaware that it's camp. I think the performances are overwrought and bad, even by Michael Stuhlbarg, wow. who I've normally never said anything bad about. 
I think this is by far the my most disliked positively reviewed film of the year. This is on Hulu from Neon. Everybody else likes it. I found Shirley to be unbearable. And Elizabeth Moss is much better in Invisible Man. That's my extremely controversial Sonic-adjacent take for possibly worst things to end this podcast today. Well, I have not seen Shirley yet, uh, but I, I can just hear the uh, the disbelief in in Chris, who I feel like is reeling from that. No, no, right now. I, it's uh, you know, in sharp contrast, this is currently number four on my top ten of the year. So Jacob and I are on very different uh, ends of the. We're, we're on different pages here, but I definitely could see why some people would not like this movie because it's very abstract and very you know. I don't know. I, I, I would definitely not be surprised if, if other people shared Jacob's opinion of this movie, because I, I know it's not for everyone, but I, I personally think it's great. Well, yeah, that's streaming on... Intention, oh, oh, sorry. I guess the intention of trying to make a movie about Shirley Jackson by making her... Making a Shirley Jackson story that feels... Uh, sorry, making a Shirley Jackson movie about Shirley Jackson that feels like a Shirley Jackson story, it, I guess the intent here, and sure, uh, but it, it, I've read a fair amount of Shirley Jackson, and I'm familiar with her life, and it's so weird that I'm I'm I, I'm willing to give Mank a pass for how it changes Mank Herman J. Mankiewicz's life because uh, because at least it makes him a more heroic figure. Whereas in real life, Shirley Jackson had four kids and was a functioning person, and then we kind of presents her as being an absolute psychopath lunatic who can't get out of bed. And and for some reason that, that rubbed me the wrong way uh, initially before the filmmaking bothered me. So I don't know. I where do we draw the line on how you can change real life figures? Uh, for films, I do not. That's a conversation I'm not ready to have right now, <laughs> but I'm I'm aware of my hypocrisy there. So I'm I'm going to put it out there. Interesting. Uh, well, Shirley is streaming on Hulu right now. So if you want to uh, to dive in and and see where you fall, uh, feel free to do that. And then Jacob, you also have been catching up on some TV as well. Oh yeah, uh, I've gone on for too long, but I've been watching Evil. I finished the first season of Evil on Netflix. This is a CBS procedural, and it's almost like. Law and Order watched Hannibal and said, why not a little bit of that? And the gist is a sort of an X-Files Law and Order setup. It's a uh, priest in training played by Mike Coulter from Luke Cage. Teams up with a blue collar, you know, tech expert and a uh, psychologist, a criminal psychologist to investigate cases for the Catholic Church. Like they say, this person claims to be possessed. Are they actually possessed or is it a psychological issue? Is this house is haunted? Is it actually haunted or the pipes rusty? And uh, each episode stands alone. There's its own individual case that ultimately builds over the season to be like, you know, sort of serialized, but also standalone, a very X-Files-esque uh, setup in both, you know, initial setup, but also in how it builds mythology episodes and Monster of the Week episodes. And it's really nicely shot. It's very creepy. It's full of abstract, bizarro imagery. Really amazing, uh, practical monsters. Lots of latex and gooiness. Lots of bloodletting. Uh, at the same time, it manages to be a horror show, but also a procedural that my mom would watch and enjoy. It walks a very fine line. It made me realize that there's nothing wrong with like a, a CBS procedural. They're just typically bad. Uh, but there's something very comforting about a, a show like Law & Order or ER or X-Files that delivers you know, that traditional network TV feel, but it's just spicy and weird enough to feel completely different. So uh, Evil, it's streaming on Netflix right now. Season 2 is in production for CBS, uh, hopefully next year. I think Evil is really good, and it was a really, really excellent way to uh, decompress after watching movies for a year and catch up. All right. Uh, Chris, let's go to you. What have you been watching? Uh, okay. Um, I rewatched Tenet because Tenet is now on digital and Blu-ray and 4K and so on. And um, uh, 
I know Christopher Nolan would uh, throw his cup of tea in my face for saying this, but I think Tenet plays a little bit better at home than it did in the theater. Um, at least for me, uh, you know, I, I saw Tenet at uh, a screening. It was a very socially distanced screening. Uh, I can, you know, I had to keep my mask on the entire movie and, uh, you know, I'm not knocking mask wearing. Mask wearing is very important. And if, if more people would realize that, we wouldn't be where we are right now. That said, the entire time I was sitting in the theater, I just kept thinking, I'm wearing a mask on my face. Like, I could not, like, tune out, like, the fabric over my, my face as I was watching the movie. And then, you know, there's that also that problem that people have been talking about for a long time with Nolan movies where his, his dialogue is very muffled. And I, I've never really had a problem with it until this movie. Um, especially the the opening prologue scene where every character just sounds like they're going like and it's like it just goes on and on so watching it at home with the subtitles on without wearing a mask i was like i enjoy this a little bit more um that said i still think it's one of his weakest movies it doesn't really feel like it's about anything like it just feels like he's just showing off his cool like you know uh, tricks and you know that's fine he's very good at that stuff i i like christopher nolan as a filmmaker and you know this film has some great you know action sequences in it but it feels like none of the characters matter at all like they're just there and they're just there and they only exist so christopher nolan can stage some cool stuff so uh, you know i don't hate tenet but it's definitely my least favorite christopher nolan movie um uh moving on complete opposite um i uh my wife and I were looking for a Christmas movie to watch that wasn't too Christmassy. So we watched while you were sleeping. Cause that's on uh, Disney plus right now. And I had actually never seen it. And man, what a charming movie that is. Uh, is this the Sandra Bullock, Bill Pullman movie? Yes. This is where she plays like uh she works at the, uh, the L and, um, uh, she falls in love. She falls in love with like Peter Gallagher. He's one of the people who rides the L every day, but she doesn't know who he is. She's just like attracted to him and he gets mugged and he falls on the tracks and he gets knocked out and she saves him from getting hit by a train and through, you know, a whole comedy of errors, she goes to the hospital with him and she ends up getting mistaken for uh, his fiance. And rather than, you know, a normal scenario where someone would say, Oh no, I'm not his fiance. She goes along and <laughs> she plays along with it and she has to pretend she's his fiance, but then his brother shows up played by Bill Pullman and she falls in love with him and so on. And, you know, it's very unrealistic, but man, it is a charming little movie. I really, uh, I really enjoyed watching this movie. Um, it's set around Christmas time. Yeah. Most of the movies set during Christmas time. And like I said, it's not overly Christmassy. So that's kind of why we were in the mood for, but it's funny and it's sweet. Uh, Sandra Bullock is good. Bill Pullman is good. Just a fun movie. So after that ended, my wife was like, man, I really want to watch more Sandra Bullock movies. And I was like, well, have you ever seen speed? And she said, no. And I was like, Oh boy, you're in for a treat. So I put speed on and man, let me tell you, it's really fun to watch speed with someone who has never seen speed before, because my wife was just like losing her goddamn mind in this movie because <laughs> like so much of speed, pretty much all of speed is practical. Like, yeah, they use miniatures and, and, you know, uh, tiny digital touches here and there, but you know, a lot of that movie is done with real action, real sets, real buses. And you can tell that by watching it. And, and that movie is just nonstop. It just never lets up. And, it was just, I just had so much fun watching this with my wife because she was just like, every time something cool happened, she was like, oh my God. It was like, there's that scene where 
they're on the freeway and the, the bus has to jump this gap. And as soon as like it, the bus went airborne, she was just like, holy shit. She was like losing her friggin' mind. And I was like, this is why movies are magic to watch people just be enthralled and be excited by, you know, movies that can do stuff like this. So speed, good movie guys. Is that uh, streaming anywhere, Chris, or did you watch like a copy that you owned? Yeah, I have it on Blu-ray. Um, okay. So while you're while you were sleeping is on Disney Plus, but Speed, I don't think it's streaming anywhere. So you watch that. Um, another movie on Disney Plus is The Santa Claus, the Tim Allen movie, which uh, I hadn't seen since I was a kid, and it's fine. Um, <laughs> it's you know it's not offensively bad. It's it's it is what it is. I will say, the kid actor in this movie who plays Tim Allen's son is like the king of annoying kid actors. Like I really wanted him to shut the hell up. Like he spends the whole movie being like, dad, why can't we get in the sleigh? And it's like, Oh man, this, this child, I don't like him. So Santa Claus, um, <laughs> David Krumholtz is amazing in that. Movie. He's great. As, as the very sarcastic elf he's very good Santa for, Claus, for, the claws for yeah. a Disney movie. It's surprisingly edgy. It is. I mean, yeah, the whole premise is literally Tim Allen kills Santa Claus and has to become Santa Claus. So, and then there's that whole scene where he loses custody of his child. Right. Cause they think, yeah, and they have to like bring the kid to a psychiatrist because they think the kid is insane because he won't shut up about the North Pole. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it is like surprisingly bleak uh, for, for a family Disney movie set at Christmas starring Tim Allen. So it, it gets points for that. But boy. I did not like that boy. I think his character's name is like Charlie, and I oh, wanted, yes. I wanted Charlie Chris, to. I, go I away. need you to watch the sequels uh, and, and report back because they <laughs> they will ruin you. They will they will completely destroy your existence as a human being. They're very bad. <laughs> All right, now I have to watch them. Uh, part three, Chris, is a Back to the Future Part Two situation where they travel back to the first film. And oh wow, yeah, is it really? I've never it seen is. the third one. Wow. I've never seen. I just realized I never saw the third one. They're really yeah. bad. The second uh, one a lot. It's a really bad movie, but. It is a Back to the Future 2 setup, and any time a movie pulls a Back to the Future 2 setup, you know, whether it be you know Back to the Future 2 itself or Endgame or anything like that, I, I have to point it out because it's it's so it's a bizarre thing. That's now I'm very curious to watch that. Now I might actually have to do it. I'll probably get like very drunk before I sit down I, and watch it. Now, as someone who loves Back to the Future, I've never been able to bring myself to watch the third movie just because just looking at Martin Short as Jack Frost makes me want to throw myself out of a window. <laughs> oh, he's Jack Frost. Oh, he's terrible. He's so bad, man. Uh, Brad and Ben and HD. Uh, uh, Martin Short's performance in in Santa Claus Three is what happens when you cast somebody who who's a legend, but a legend who need some direction but you're too much of a coward to tell him anything <laughs> oh boy well uh chris you got two other movies on deck here what else have you been watching uh right so keeping with the christmas theme i rewatched uh scrooge the bill murray one and uh i love that movie i i do think it's it's a little uneven and after i watched it i i read up on it and i never realized this but bill murray apparently just like hates that fucking movie like all the interviews with him are just like, oh, I hated making that. I hated working with Richard Donner. Uh, there was a ton of scenes that got cut out. So um, he's not a fan of it. I still like it. I do think parts of it don't work very well. Um, I, I really like Carol Kane as an actress, but her entire sequence where she's the, the ghost of Christmas present, she's she's dialed up to like 11 and it's just a little too much. Um, that said, I- short well, Santa Claus 3. <laughs> that said, I, what I really love about Scrooge is how unapologetically like creepy it is. Like it's it's creepier than most like horror movies. Like there's this shot 
um, as a kid, it fucking terrified me. And I still think it's really creepy. There's this part where Bill Murray ends up in like the sewer and he finds uh, this character he met earlier, this homeless guy. Uh, his name is Herman. He's played by Michael J. Pollard. And he's like in the sewer. Uh, Herman's in the sewer and he's frozen. He's dead. He like he died of exposure, basically. And he's frozen solid. And he has this like smile on his face. And it's like the way Richard Donner shoots that is like creepier than most creepy scenes in legitimate horror movies. And like, even now when I watch it, I'm just like, Oh, this is upsetting. So I really appreciate how just, it really, it really leans into the whole ghost element of it, which is, you know, when I was a kid, I was really into a Christmas Carol because it was about ghosts. That's what really excited me the most about that story. So I really liked that this movie is like, yeah, we're going to play out the fact that this is a ghost story. So I think that's, that's really cool. And then finally, another Disney Plus movie, uh, but not a Christmas movie, is big. They just added this to Disney Plus, the the, the famous Penny Marshall, Tom Hanks movie. And uh, this is another movie I hadn't seen since I was a kid. And uh, man, this holds up. It's a charming little film. I do think it has a few problems. I do think the script kind of like forgets about a lot of characters and it takes a lot of easy ways out where he's like, he just manages to land this job at this like... <laughs> company that makes toys like very easily. And I know that's sort of like they play it up as like a, a comedy thing. Like, Oh, it's silly that he got that job, but it's just a little too silly. I also think it's really, really weird. And I've always thought this, that he has sex with Elizabeth Perkins, character, because, you know, even though it's Tom Hanks, he's still supposed to be a kid. And he's like, I think he's, he's like 13. Mm-hmm. And that just, that's really kind of gross, but uh, Tom Hanks, man, you know, if he wasn't in this movie, it would not work. He he's the reason it works as well as it does because he's just so goddamn good in this. And this is another movie that isn't afraid to like be creepy from time to time. Like there's that when he, when Tom Hanks first find, not Tom Hanks, the kid finds that the Zoltar machine on, on, it's like at the carnival, but it's like at the dead end of the carnival, right by the waterfront. It's in the shadows. And the way Penny Marshall shoots that is like, so wonderfully spooky and then there's that shot where it's like oh the machine's unplugged and i was like oh fuck yeah i wish penny marshall had like made like a horror movie because that that one shot of the the machine in the dark on the pier proves that like she really could have like shot something scary if she had wanted to but she never did but there you have it big thank you all right and that's on disney plus uh brad let's go to you what have you been watching um, I have been watching Ammonite, uh, but this is part of my 2020 year end catch up. Uh, it's available, I think, on premium VOD right now. If, if not, maybe the lower priced rental and in limited theaters. So this is um, a uh, a period romance um, that is inspired by a real life British paleontologist named Mary Anning, played by Kate Winslet. And so it's set in the 1840s. She's this, um, I didn't know this about her, but she's this uh, fairly famous um, figure among paleontologists, uh, self-taught, very well known for unearthing uh, various uh, skeletons and and whatnot. But this movie finds her kind of uh, towards the the, the end of her career where she's not very prominent anymore. She kind of keeps to herself and still lives on this very dreary, cold um, beachside, look, still looking for skeletons and whatnot, runs a little shop with her her ailing mother. And then uh, an aspiring paleontologist comes to town uh, with his wife, played by Saoirse Ronan, um, and then he suddenly has to leave away and leaves his wife in under the care of uh, Kate Winslet's character. And as the two spend time together, they go from being kind of adverse to each other to uh, striking up this romance with each other. And it's... Uh, 
a well-acted movie for sure. Cheshire Ron and Kate Winslet are great um, on their own, but I didn't find much of any real passion or chemistry between them as lovers. And then aside from that, overall, the movie just suffers from being released a year after Portrait of a Lady on Fire because it essentially tells the um, same story just with a couple of different characters, and it's far less vibrant, much more dreary, very cold. And I just found myself not really getting into it very much. Um, and it, it really seems like it kind of shoots for the moon when it comes to making these very uh, intimate, um, you know, lo- love scenes between Saoirse Ronan and Kate Winslet. But it just I just found myself not really being like a, um, overwhelmed by their, their romance or passion for each other. So uh, Ammonites, not all that great, kind of disappointing. That's a bummer. All right, what else? Uh, I've also been watching some television. I recently finished The Queen's Gambit. Um, I don't I don't remember. Has anybody else talked about The Queen's Gambit on here yet? I don't think we have addressed it, even though it was like evidently one of the biggest shows of the year. Like People seem to love this show, but I, I haven't watched any of it. I don't remember anybody else talking about it. That's what I thought. My roommate watched it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, so every, everyone's been ranting and raving about the show. And let me tell you, it is fucking great. Um, it is so fantastic. You know, it's um, not not to sound you know cheesy or, or basic, but like it's one of those those sh- uh, stories that uh, yes, it's it's about chess and this um, you know girl who becomes very good at it and climbs the ranks of you know uh, being a chess master and playing against some of the best in the world. But obviously, it's about so much more than chess. Uh, it, um, I said chess. It's chess, and it's uh, a, a very character-driven piece um anya taylor joy is incredible in this in this lead role she's so good it makes me just want to keep seeing her do more and more and hopefully she doesn't mess with nonsense like new mutants anymore um there's uh, a great supporting cast in here as well um uh, his name escapes me right now but the the um guy who played uh dudley dursley in harry potter is in it um as a fantastic character um thomas brody sangster who is the liam neeson's kid from love actually was also in game of thrones he plays this um, kind of like hipster-esque uh, character who's like meant to be like uh, oddly like sexy. He's like the, almost like a cowboy hipster, and it's such a weird role for him, but it, it works so well. Um, and so, so it's uh, I haven't even said what the show is about. I'm sure a lot of you know, but it uh, essentially follows this young orphan girl um, who wa- was orphaned due to a very tragic circumstance. Uh, and she grows up in this um, private orphanage school and starts learning chess by playing with the, uh, the this janitor who is constantly playing with him um, against himself in the basement. And as she learns the game, it's clear like she's able to um, able to focus on it uh, at, at night and play games in her head and figure things out. And so she learns very quickly and becomes very good. And you follow her as she grows up and has this kind of uh, troubled teenage, teenage life. She gets adopted, um, starts carving her own path and figuring things out. And it's just just watching her as a character evolve um, and the way that they make chess so dramatic, even though it's something that's not necessarily visually exciting. Just the, the way that um, Scott Frank makes it play, play out is so enthralling and mesmerizing. Um, I, I, I 
we slow my girlfriend and I we slowly went through this show um, over like I want to say it was like two and a half maybe three weeks just be, um and we wanted to keep watching it but I was also just like savoring it too because I didn't want to binge through it all uh, so quickly um, because it's only seven episodes and if Netflix is smart they won't do any more with it than that it tells a very complete story they don't need to do like a second season or like try and capitalize on its popularity um, but it's just it's a fantastic show and it, I, it makes me wish that it were you know, a, a movie because it would definitely be on my top 10 list if, if that were the case. But even so, it's definitely some of the best TV of the year. Awesome. What else have you been watching, Brad? Uh, I've also watched, oh, what else did I watch? Oh, the holiday movies that made us. Um, so we talked about the the primary version of the show on here before, which is the movies that made us, which is this uh, documentary-esque kind of show where they talk to various filmmakers about the making of uh, famous movies cultural touchstones like die hard uh, home alone and whatnot um and we mostly enjoyed it i think for, for those of us that watched it because it, it kind of it dug past more of the surface level uh featurette glossy publicity kind of stuff you normally see and talked about to you know people who worked on the crew um distanced from making it and were actually able to dig into some of the controversy and drama and things that you know um made the production difficult at times uh, and the holiday movies that made us um, doesn't do that quite so well. It, it does have some of the similar stories, but I, for some reason, I don't remember the original version of the series being quite as obnoxious because this one, it's edited such in such a like frenetic way that like they they're, they're doing way too much cutting of like completing people's sentences with lines from the movie or quick cutting to movie the clips from the movies that match with what they're saying. Um, or repeating clips for like just small bite-sized phrases and like it makes it feel like it was cut together um, by somebody who's just all hopped up on on Mountain Dew um, it's, it's, it's all over the place and they, yeah that was very frustrating to me while, while watching these two installments and so I don't know if I need to go back and see if that's how the original one was too but this just feels much more crazy than that but the, there's still interesting stories there Night before the Nightmare Before Christmas and Elf are the two movies that are in this um, the Nightmare Before Christmas episode digs in a lot more to the drama that came from uh, Tim Burton and his disagreements with certain choices for the movie and uh, his history with Disney and all that stuff. So that that's interesting if you if you don't know it. Um, and then Elf is um, less dramatic, so and more just about how uh, crazy it is that this movie actually got made and just the steps and uh, how little everyone working on it really knew what they were doing, especially when it comes to the the producers and, and, and everything. And so uh, I, I think that one's a little bit more fun and uh, lighthearted, but it's the, th the thing that makes this show suffer, I guess, is that they don't have interviews with people like John Favreau or Will Ferrell or Tim Burton or, or anything like that. So they have some good key people, uh, but not everybody. And it kind of takes away from it uh, a little bit from being much more comprehensive than it uh, otherwise could have been. So that's the holiday movies that made us. That's on Netflix, right? It is. It is. Okay. Uh, and then I also, uh, I've continued my, my friends uh, catch up, if you will. Uh, I finished friends season two. Um, and so this, this one was uh, fun. I still really enjoy the show. I, I'm really, really glad um, that the, the first um, getting rid of Marcel, the, the the monkey, was a great decision because there was the one thing that I hated um, about early friends. It just didn't make any sense to me. I, it felt like such a stupid, kitschy thing to have. 
I don't know if there are tons of fans out there who love Marcel. I'm sorry if that's the case, but but no. Um, I but I will say bringing the him back uh, for the Super Bowl episode, which was weird. Um, a friends, a two part episode, which has cameos from Jean Claude Van Damme, Julia Roberts, Dan Castellaneta, Fred Willard, uh, a weird assembly of people for this Super Bowl episode. Um, and then you know it's you have Tom Selleck who plays a key role in this uh this season as well as as courtney cox's um older boyfriend uh which was interesting and so yeah the the series is is really fun it still has those moments where it gets a little too like oh this is a network sitcom kind of zany thing but you know again it comes down to just the chemistry um of this this cast and how well they work together um and so it's you know i'm i'm getting more interested in getting uh, seeing the episodes where like we start getting bigger guest stars or you know more guest stars what you know earlier on in their career, so yeah, friends, it's it's still pretty good. And where are you watching that, Brad? Uh, it's on HBO Max. All right, uh, HT, what have you been watching? I finally watched Soul after all of you guys talked about, it, so I won't speak too much on it. But you can also read my full thoughts on this new Pixar movie on SlashFilm.com, which my review went up today. And um, this is a, the latest of the Pixar movies that I watched and thought, huh, the people over at Pixar are really going through something, huh? And it's a really, again, gorgeous uh, ambitious existential movie and one that takes you in very unexpected directions. Hey everybody, it's Ben. I just wanted to interrupt real quick to drop a spoiler warning for Soul. We're about to talk about some stuff that has not been revealed so far in the marketing. So if you'd like to skip this conversation and jump ahead to the rest of the podcast, you can go to the time code one hour and 41 minutes and six seconds. Okay, back to the show. It starts off as this abstract exploration of uh, after death and before and before life. And that's something that was really exciting and, and weird and um, uh, intriguing. And then the second half, I don't know if I can go into spoilers by now, but I, I'm just gonna say it goes and it becomes a body swap comedy, which I did not expect at all. And I'm not really sure if I enjoyed that. I never really, I never really liked like, um, comedies where uh the the main character which i'll I'll go into this a little later main character goes into becomes like an animal and transforms into animal i never really enjoyed those that trope of animated movies and um it's often something that is uh is seen with characters of color too which didn't slip by my notice either so this was something that i felt like played into Maybe unintentionally, that idea of the black character being hidden um, by from like the focal point by t- transforming into an animal, which I did not really quite enjoy. But I really liked how ambitious and weird um, and just kind of um, soul searching that this movie was. Uh, and while I don't think it really finds all the answers that it means to, it does have that Pixar heart that I think keeps it from getting a little bit too um, out of its own grasp. And um, I, I, do, I do think there's a lot of movie going on in this movie. There's like three different movies happening uh, and it almost becomes overwhelming, but I think it holds together. And it's definitely one of the most intriguing and most experimental of the Pixar movies um, from that studio. So one of the one of the top not top tier but pretty high up on that pixar list but it's a hard um it is a hard list to crack so soul really great um really fascinating 
an unexpected movie, kind of like jazz. It riffs and it ad-libs in a way that you don't expect. Uh, HG, just to let you know, I, I had a chance to interview the filmmakers and the interview is spoiler heavy, so it'll come out on Christmas Day, I think, when the movie drops on Disney+. Plus. But um, they addressed that uh, concern that you had about like the black character being involved in a a body swap thing with an animal. Um, they, they talked about that directly and, and sort of uh, what they thought about that and, and how they thought that the movie sort of sidestepped some of the uh, issues that people might have with that. So um, I just wanted to plug that real quick in, in case other people uh, have a chance to see this and, and think the same thing. I would recommend reading what they had to say about it. So uh, that's all. What else have you been watching? I also watched Minari, uh, which is the uh, movie written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung and stars Stephen Yun as a father of a Korean-American family who um, transplants his family to uh, rural America to start a farm in Arkansas in search of the American dream. And I love me some assimilation angst. And this movie, which is such a fragile, uh, tender portrait of that search for the American dream and that and that um, conflict, that dilemma around assimilation uh, is so is so well done. It's such a lovely film. Uh, Stephen Yun gives a tremendous performance. Um, and I also want to uh, add that uh, Han Yeri, who plays his wife, is also really excellent. And um, as is Yoon Ye Jung, who plays the grandmother, who's my favorite character of the bunch. She gives a really earthy and warm performance and a little bit ornery um, in the way that reminds me um, positively of the grandmother from the farewell. It just feels very authentic and lived in. And um, I really absolutely adored her performance and uh, the, this, the slow burning uh, delicate film as well. So that's Minari, uh, which is uh, being released by A24. Um, it's in limited release. Uh, December 11th, so last week, and goes to a wide release February 12th. Um, A24 needs to really work on their digital releases, releases especially during like these times. But um, so I'm not really sure why they are sticking so heavily to theatrical releases, uh, especially being a studio that has been on the forefront of like distribution and being on that that kind of uh, digital. Uh, Aside, this is kind of an aside of me like complaining about A24. Well, yeah, but... and I think they've signed a deal with uh, Apple TV Plus too, right? Because I think uh, On the Rocks is an A24 production, yeah. so you would think that they would just be able to drop it on like directly onto A24 or onto uh, Apple TV Plus, or maybe at least like put it there for people to pay for it or something. Yeah, and they used to have a deal with Amazon too. I don't know why they are such a stickler. I mean, I understand that the theatrical experience is important, and I know that it's important to save these businesses, but I don't understand why they're such a stickler for keeping their theaters, their movies in theaters during this time. Um, I just think it's it's a very unusual for A24, which has been such a, a good and like forward thinking company until now. I guess this is kind of I feel I feel bad for like t- turning this into a, a complaint about A24, but it just I feel like Minari is a film that deserves to be widely seen by people even during these times when theaters aren't exactly safe for mm-hmm. everyone. So I just it's it's a shame that more people can't see Minari, um, which is a really really wonderful movie. Hashtag release the green night. Uh, yes. Okay, let's let's go to what we've been eating. Brad, what crazy things have you been eating recently? 
Um, so still some some holiday snacks. Uh, so Sweet Tarts ropes are pretty good. Get them at the movie theaters. Um, they made some pretty damn good Wonder Woman 1984 inspired uh, ones earlier this year. I think you can maybe still find them around now that the movie's finally coming out. Um, and there's a new uh, holiday punch version of Sweet Tarts ropes that are really good. They're uh, red and green swirls with the Sweet Tart center, and the flavor of them is uh, it's a very like um, you know a, a fruit punch basically kind of flavor, and it, it mixes really well with that um, Sweet Tart uh, center. So I, I wish that they weren't just like uh, a holiday thing because I feel like this flavor would be good all the time, but. Apparently, it's just a holiday release, so there you go. Um, I'm pretty sure you can find them anywhere the seasonal candy aisle is. Just keep an eye out for them. Um, and then uh, Monster Energy has two new juice-flavored drinks. Um, I don't really like the regular Monster Energy drinks, but their juice um, flavor lineup is is one of my favorite ones because I, I particularly like their Mango Loco flavor. Uh, and these two new ones are really good as well. It's uh, Papillon and Chaotic. The first one is a, a new flavor that they hadn't released before, and then the second one is a callback to, like, one of their original flavors, apparently. It says this on the can. I'm the kind of person who reads the can sometimes. <laughs> um, uh, and so they're both really good. They're, uh, what I love about the, the Monster Juice ones is they don't really taste like an energy drink. They just basically taste like a, uh, a slightly carbonated uh, juice, kind of reminding me of a mimosa. Um, just without, you know, the, the champagne headache that comes later on. Um, so yeah, so if you like, fr- uh, you know, fruit, juicy energy drinks and, you know, um, I would recommend trying both of the new monster flavors. Um, and then there's a new Kit Kat flavor out there. One of my favorite Kit Kats is the, uh, mint duo. Uh, I'm not usually a big fan of dark chocolate, but the dark chocolate with mint is something that I really enjoy. Uh, and this time they've done chocolate with uh, a mocha flavor. So it's, a, it's a, basically a coffee Kit Kat. Uh, and the coffee flavor isn't too overwhelming. Um, it has a, that great, you know, coffee smell to it. Uh, and it mixes really well with the the, the wafer. It's um, almost like you're having, like, some kind of, like, coffee biscuit if, if you, you know, want to go that route. Um, so, yeah, Mocha Kit Kat duos. Those are really good. Uh, and then uh, Snickers Peanut Brownie Squares. This, is, this was kind of weird because I was expecting this to just be, like, a, a Snickers with brownie bits in it. But it's actually a Snickers bar that is mostly filled with brownie and then a layer of caramel and then nuts in the, the brownie section of the candy bar. And it's not a full Snickers bar. They are, um, like the title implies, uh, squares. So it comes in like a pack of like two or three squares. And then the, I think the larger one has four in it or something like that. Um, and I'm, I've am i been disappointed recently by the brownie flavored things that have come through candy bars like there was a brownie m&m that was just kind of meh uh but these are actually really good and i think it's mostly just because it's essentially just a tiny chocolate covered brownie with nuts and caramel so it 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 works in their favor i was was gonna say brad like at what point does it cease to become a snickers and become something else entirely i wonder if like i and i don't know this because i didn't really look even though i'm somebody who reads the can i don't read the candy bar label um (laughs) i didn't look to see if it was like a a brownie that had like nougat mixed in with it to make it more of like a a snickers bar uh, or what but yeah i i don't know maybe it's just the the snickers branding on what is just a, a candy bar brownie (laughs) (laughs) all right uh so let's move into our final section which is what we've been playing jacob what have you been playing uh i beat demon souls on the playstation 5 this game we talked about a few weeks ago it's a remake of the uh, infamous uh, playstation 3 game uh that is incredibly difficult uh punishing brutal uh but very rewarding one of the best designed strangest games i've played in a long time and and remake does a strange choice where it 
chooses to polish up a lot of things, but chooses to keep a lot of the original game's quirks. So if you're like me and played the company's later games like Dark Souls and Bloodborne first, going back to Demon Souls is strange because there are certain elements in it that are very aged and archaic and were cut out for a reason. But given this PlayStation 5 coat of polish, so it looks and plays incredibly. Uh, but that was, I guess, part of the idea of a remake uh, of, you know, is to make that game, not to try to, you know, change what made it that game. Anyway, I beat it and I'm proud of it because it's hard. It was hard AF, guys. <laughs> and according to the uh, achievements, or sorry, the uh, trophies, what they call them on PlayStation, I think only like 37% of players who have played it have beaten it. Uh, so. I'm among 37% of people who beat Demon Souls, and I feel very good about it. I'm very proud of myself. I'm an excellent video gamer. High five to me. <laughs> Congratulations, Jacob. Well done. Uh, all right. I think that's going to bring us to the end of today's episode of the show. Slash Film Daily is published three times a week, bringing the most exciting news from the world of movies and TV, as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site. I encourage everybody to go to SlashFilm.com multiple times a day and just read all of the stuff that we're putting out there. There's some great stuff. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Spotify, all of the popular podcast apps, and send your feedback, questions, comments, and concerns to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget also to rate and review the podcast. That helps us out a lot. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you guys on Friday. Ben. Yes, Jacob. Ben, I've opened up... Uh... Not the Gantrian book of insult, offense, and affrontery by Louis A. Safian, but a seasonal web page. Oh boy, another one of these, huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I probably will not be on a podcast next week. Uh, I, I, I will. I'm. I'm um, I will not be at my home for for, for the holidays. Um, playing it safe, quarantining now, getting my shots, getting uh, not my shots, getting my, <laughs> my test <laughs> to make sure I'm traveling safely. But because of that, I want to make sure that. We have a, a seasonal uh, edition of the insults before I am away for a little while. All right. Uh, so this is from um, bestinsults.com slash Christmas insults. <laughs> I've read through some of these. Some of these, uh, I do not recommend going to this page because uh, there are some questionable jokes uh, among these. But <laughs> I will find the ones that will make Louis A. Safety and proud. Um, all right. Uh, ben. Ben. Is it Christmas or is there a reason why you're extra stupid? <laughs> wow. Okay. That I, I don't really see the correlation, but okay. Look, look this is from bestinsults.com, Ben. So clearly they know what they're talking about, right? Indeed. Uh, and Chris, you're so slutty. Santa's going to be going ho, ho, ho. Oh my God. Wow. <laughs> I mean, thank you. Chris's wife is going to be upset. <laughs> um, uh, HT, uh, you got the best Christmas present ever, a broken drum. You can't beat it. Ah. These are, these are terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I scroll down further. They, they, they get increasingly dire, increasingly non-specific to Christmas, and increasingly racist. That's oh, no. so. So, wait, who didn't get one? Brad? Is that right? Uh, well, Brad, did you know that stressed is just desserts spelled backwards? It's not even an insult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what is it? It's just a fight. Even, yeah. <laughs> Bestinsults.com. Come on. 